This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Thursday, March 5th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I'm going to say something that you may not like because it is about someone who you may not like, and it is a compliment. It is an earnest, genuine compliment to this person. Now, as prologue, let me say this. I'm not a single-issue voter. I, in fact, have two issues, eliminating pennies and adopting a permanent daylight saving time. And yeah, 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 transit, housing, crime, public health, war. All that, I believe in other things, but those two, the pennies and the daylight saving, those are my signature issues. If you know this about me, you know, my signature. I have no real ideological soulmates within the corridors of power. Or at least I thought I didn't. And then I came across this video on Twitter. The first couple of words you're going to hear are soft. The speaker is saying the following. We're about to do one of the stupidest things we do every single year. And that is have to move our clock forward and move our clock back. It makes no sense. There's no reason to keep doing it. It's time to go permanent daylight savings and end this once and for all. We have a bill to do that. Let's see if we can get it done this year. This is stupid. I'm not looking forward to Sunday. We're going to lose an hour of sleep. Everybody's going to be upset. It's just dumb. There's no reason to keep doing it. Yes, yes, yes. Preach on, brother. It's more than dumb. It's idiotic. It's self-defeating. It's sclerotic. It's shameful. You want to know who the speaker is? Could you tell? If you could, you're pretty good at name that senator speaking because it's Marco Rubio. I support Marco Rubio's cause. Really, Marco Rubio supports my cause, but I have rarely heard a politician so embody my inner feelings on a deeply held belief. And I will say this, I will vote for Marco Rubio if that meant the difference between our current regime of daylight saving time and the normal, logical, let's just keep the lights on a little bit later, all the time, to be whipsawed thoughtlessly in this biannual plunge into darkness and light makes no sense. So I support him. That said, I don't live in Florida. My vote will not really move the needle on the issue. His legislation probably won't get through Congress. Also, he's bad on abortion taxes, the Supreme Court, and, you know, Cuba relations. But, man, is he right on daylight saving. So, Senator Marco Rubio, you are the guy that I didn't think that I'd find myself in 100% agreement with today. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Foursquare from here through next Sunday at 2.30 a.m., which won't exist because we are engaged in a societal game of make-believe chronology that stopped making sense about the time we all stopped churning our own butter. There it is. I said it. Marco Rubio's right. On the show today, Trump is wrong. Don't worry, I haven't gone soft. I'm a solutions guy. Trump would be hilariously clueless about the possible impending pandemic, except, you know, it's all right there in the phrase possible impending pandemic. So that's in the spiel, where I'm critical of our Republican president. And you just heard me laud a Republican senator. So 
I guess the interview will have to decide where I stand on the Republicans. I speak to a Republican thinker, a conservative thinker. Yuval Levine is the director of social, cultural, and constitution studies at the American Enterprise Institute. What is left once you handle the social and the cultural and the constitutional animal husbandry? Anyway, from his perch, Yuval has been thinking the big thoughts about where our society should go because now it's quite stuck. His new book talks about how institutions are failing us because we're failing our institutions. A time to build from family and community to Congress and the campus, how recommitting our institutions can revive the American dream. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The United States, the most powerful country, I don't know, by some objective measures in history, for some reason has this tendency to want to tear down its institutions. Asymmetric warfare, only we're the one with all the chits. Why is this? And how bad is it for the United States? These are some of the topics in Yuval Levin's new book, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Hello, Yuval. Thanks for joining me. Thanks very much for having me. So let's just skip to about two-thirds of the way in, and you start talking about formality, formalism, a defense of the formal over the informal. Is this in online spaces or in all spaces that you think that's it's important in driving where we are today? Well, up to a point in all spaces. It's a matter of degree, of course, and formalism can easily become very oppressive. But I think we're living in a time now when we have a lot of trouble knowing who and what to trust. And one of the arguments of the book is that one of the services that institutions, when they're healthy, provide for us is allowing us to know who and what to trust. And they do that by establishing forms, professional forms or structural forms or political forms or social forms that let us know when something serious is happening as opposed to not, when someone with some authority is in front of us and when not. And I think we're in a moment now when we just have trouble telling the difference between what we're supposed to take seriously and what we're supposed to treat as a cynical joke. And that's true online and in general, so that stronger institutions could help us a little on that front. Yeah, and I think it's a purposeful strategy, especially among people like Donald Trump, who can either make a joke and then get mad if you, quote unquote, don't get it, or not make a joke and then claim it's a joke, or in fact, have all his cynical minions descend on people with some sort of quasi-joke, you know, frogs, memes, insider accounts. And it's not just the Trump people. The left does this too. But it's this way of using informality. And if you don't understand the informality, it's a way of using it as a cudgel. Yeah, I think it's a way of treating the idea of mediation as somehow inauthentic. And so using authenticity as a kind of weapon to try to destabilize our sense of what's real and what's not, what's true and what's not. And, you know, again, up to a point, a certain kind of unmediated authenticity can be great. But I think we have to see that we are well past that point in a lot of arenas of American life. And we need to recover something of a sense of how authority can be legitimated and how we might take it seriously. 
Right, because on my show, I've talked a lot about how much I like gatekeepers, not the bad gatekeepers who kept the good stuff out, but the good gatekeepers who kept the bad stuff out. Now, it seems to me that it all comes down to how good a gatekeeper does his or her job as opposed to the institution of the gatekeepers themselves. But I guess the people who would disagree with me or the people who were more critical of gatekeepers wouldn't even allow that there can be a gatekeeper doing their job well. They just see the end result and say, you know what we need to do to bypass this is let's get rid of the gatekeepers. Yeah, I think one thing to understand about that is that a a strong institution with a clear identity imposes some obligations on the gatekeeper, not only on the people trying to enter. And so allows us to have a sense that the people that we've charged with some responsibility for policing some arena of our common life also have to prove themselves by some standard of integrity, by some form of responsibility, some mode of training, so that their job is not just to keep out people they don't like, but to impose some standards on an important arena of our national life. In the professions, I think sometimes it's easy to see that and take that seriously. We don't just want amateurs performing dental surgery on us. We want to have a sense that the people in the room are supposed to be there. But it's hard to accept that that's the case in a lot of other parts of American life where we tend to think that uh, that amateurs is all we need. And it's especially hard to accept about politics where it seems like in a democratic society, politics ought to be just about everybody everywhere all the time. And of course, at some level, that's true. But we have to have some sense that there are standards that can help us tell the difference between someone who's lying to us and someone who's telling the truth, someone with experience and someone who's pretending to be capable You need to have some kinds of gatekeepers there. And institutions like our parties, for example, have developed over time to function as as those kinds of gatekeepers. But obviously, they've lost a lot of their legitimacy and authority in the last few decades. Here's where I have to challenge myself and in doing so challenge the statements that you just made a little bit. I do like gatekeepers. I do think that we're seeing the effect of the flood of no gatekeepers. It's allowing a lot of disinformation and chaos. On the other hand... If it were the fact that what all the gatekeepers were doing were making uh, calls based on the merit of things and not based on, say, the natural human inclination to have an in-group bias or to think that people who are like them or were raised like them or look like them uh, have the best ideas, I mean, that would be one thing. But if you look at the history of the gatekeepers, it did keep out, you would have to agree, black people, absolutely, female people people who weren't straight or identified that way. And that was a problem. And I could say hypothetically, well, it doesn't have to be that way. And you can imagine we'd still have these strong institutions and yet we'd have a flourishing of diversity. But that's hypothetical. That, that didn't happen. That's not the way it happened. Well, the, the hard part about all this is that it is a matter of degree so that the amount of gatekeeping we need in a free society is greater than zero. But we have certainly lived in times when it has been far too great. And so we have to find some balance that allows us to have some confidence in our political processes and our institutions, but that also is sufficiently willing to admit people of different views, of different backgrounds, as you say, of different races, different sexes. So finding that balance is no easy matter. I'm not suggesting that I have a simple formula for it, but saying that the only solution is having no gatekeepers is a recipe for a disastrously failed politics. And I think we increasingly are beginning to see what that can look like and the reasons why we do need some sorts of professionalization at some levels of our political life so that the options that are put before the public arise not just out of the work of the people who are best able to get attention, so that our parties are not just platforms for narcissists, 
but that they are actually at some level able to define the scope, the shape of our political arena in a way that enriches our democracy. Obviously, you're never going to reach the ideal there, and you're always going to go to excess in one direction or another. But we have to see that in this moment, we've gone to excess in disabling and delegitimizing our parties, not in empowering them. We live in a moment where people want to say we need to break down the establishment. I think the establishment is much too weak now, and that's not an easy argument for anybody to make in our politics. I want to ask you about the idea of institutions and platforms. So this is something you write a lot about in the book, that it used to be the case that institutions were powerful and that people would want to become part of an institution to get some of the power that the institution confers, but also to be shaped by and legitimize the institution. Say, a journalist who worked for the New York Times or a senator who is a member of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Now it is the case that they just use these institutions to get the platform and then get more famous. But here's my question. Let's just take politics. AOC has gotten a lot of attention. She has the platform. But can a case really be made that she is better at her job, better for herself, better for democracy than Lauren Underwood, who is also a freshman female minority member of Congress who kind of eschews the national spotlight, sticks to her knitting, and does a good job. So in other words, my question is, is it really the case that the institutions have lost sway and they've just become a means of gaining a platform? Or it seems like that to us because of, we're, of course we're going to pay attention to not the people who are working deep within the institutions and using them as a functional thing, but we're going to pay attention to the people who've gotten the attention and seek the attention on platforms. The way to start answering that question is to ask ourselves, if we're talking about Congress in this case, is Congress working? Is it functional? Is it doing its job? And I think in this moment, you would have to say that it's not. There's not a lot of legislation that moves. We don't see agreements and compromises and accommodations reached. We don't see uh, the, the institution functioning effectively or in a way that's satisfying to voters and the public. And you have to ask why. Now, one of the major reasons why is that the incentives that now confront members of Congress are largely outward-facing and not inward-facing incentives. The opportunities they have to stand out, to achieve something, to change something, have much more to do with becoming a cultural figure, a kind of celebrity in our political culture, than with becoming an insider who works to move legislation in Congress. Mm -hmm. So that someone like AOC is responding to a very powerful set of incentives that drive her to behave as a performer much more than as a legislator. I think we see that in uh, throughout our politics. We see it in a lot of other institutions where the incentives now are not to be shaped by the institution, but to view it as a platform for performance, for building your own brand, for building a following. So that it's not that there are no exceptions to this, that there are no members who would much rather be legislators, but that those members are not effective, they're not perceived to be as successful, and the institution isn't functioning well. If you think about the purpose of Congress, the purpose of Congress fundamentally is to drive accommodation, to compel compromise. And that clearly isn't happening now. Instead, what you find, if you go to an average congressional committee hearing now, you would basically find a bunch of individuals producing YouTube clips to use later in, in, in their election campaigns. You find people performing for an audience that isn't really there, an audience that, oh, they're, that they're going to find later online. You find people trying to build an audience and a following. 
it used to be that people would seek a microphone to get power and change things. Now we find people seeking power to get a microphone and say things. Counterpoint. I could argue that one reason that our Congress isn't working well is that institutionalist Mitch McConnell realized that by working with and using the levers of that institution, he could shape it so that it thwarts all progress. Well, I think Mitch McConnell would love to see legislation move. And there are some Democrats who would like to see legislation move, too. But very few of the members they're working with are interested in that. Most of the younger Republican senators now who Mitch McConnell deals with really are just trying to get themselves in front of a camera to elevate their profile. It's increasingly true as well of Democrats, especially in the House. And so the leaders necessarily respond to the kinds of pressures and demands they get from their members. And right now, there is remarkably little interest in Congress in actually doing legislative work. There's much more interest in doing a kind of performative work. Well, what about state houses? What about other branches of government where there's still the incentive to use institutions as platforms, but plenty of state houses are actually working well. Plenty of city councils are addressing their people's concerns, and it's not as if they don't have an incentive to become platforms also. Absolutely. Without question, you do see much more functional legislating happening at the state level where there's less of an opportunity to become a celebrity in the same way where the big abstract national issues have not quite infiltrated in the same way. You see that process happening gradually. More and more local and state elections now are about national issues and even the big symbolically significant national issues where elections in my county in Maryland now are more and more about immigration, which the county, whether it likes it or not, doesn't actually control. And so you do see this problem in lesser degrees in many state houses, which do continue to be pretty functional. So last thing, do you think right now, because I think right now that the median Democrat more adheres to your beliefs on institutions than the median Republican? And maybe this is just because of fealty to Donald Trump. But on this day that we're talking, two prominent Democrats left the race in order to stave off this more atomized deviation of institutions that Bernie Sanders represents. And that sort of semi-collective action was not able to be achieved when Trump was running for president. That alone tells me that I think the Democrats might inhabit institutionalism more than Republicans right now. Well, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, it, the Democrats are going through something that does feel similar to what Republicans went to in 2016, where there is this collective action problem and everybody's standing around saying, who's going to do something about this? Right. But my point is the Democrats did, is Amy and Pete did in a way that Ted and Chris didn't. We can look at the timing. I mean, some of them did and some of them didn't. But it's true. Cruz and Rubio stayed in much longer than they should have if their goal was to stop Trump. Where I agree with you is that I think that this attitude is, to me, more worrisome on the right than the left because a conservatism that is hostile to institutions is inherently incoherent and has trouble offering the country much of anything. I come to this attitude because I'm a conservative. I think that, I mean, my, my view of politics begins from the premise that people enter the world unformed, unready, fallen, crooked somehow, needing to be formed before we can be free. And that formation is what our institutions do for us. So that what we need is more than liberation, but really formation. And for that reason, conservatism ultimately seeks to conserve functional institutions. That's what it's about protecting. Today's American right is much too hostile to our institutions and treats them with contempt, treats them with fundamental disrespect, with a kind of conspiratorial mindset that begins by rejecting what these institutions have to offer. And I think that problem is at the moment worse on the right. And in any case, it's more dangerous on the right at any time. 
Yuval Levin is the author of A Time to Build. It has that long subtitle that you heard in the beginning, but I'll give you a little of his uh, CV on the way out. He's the director of social, cultural, and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute and the editor of National Affairs. Great to talk to you. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Yesterday, the president of these United States sought to address a nation made anxious by the coronavirus. And he did so by utilizing the powers of his office to clearly communicate with his fellow American citizen, meaning he joined the Sean Hannity program by phone. Donnie from Queens, first time, long time. Hey, got a couple of crazy theories I'd like to lay on you, Sean. So I'm going to kind of hoist him up the flagpole, see who salutes, and fire anyone who doesn't. Report today, the global death rate at 3.4%, and a report that the Olympics could be delayed. Your reaction to that? Well, I think the 3.4% is really a false number. Now, this is just my hunch. And uh, but based on a lot of conversations with a lot of people that do this, because a lot of people will have this and it's very mild. Uh, they'll get better very rapidly. They don't even see a doctor. They don't even call a doctor. You never hear about those people. Yeah, you do. They're in the 96.6% who aren't in the 3.4%. Granted, 3.4% is an early estimate, but it is an estimate from the World Health Organization, and it is based on their surveys of all known fatal and non-fatal COVID cases. Furthermore, cruise ships like the Diamond Princess, they're a very useful, if quite terrible, experiment because everyone on board is at least tested. So six passengers so far have died. They say 700 tested positive. And importantly, everyone was tested. So that means a death rate of about 1%. And of course, more people could die. Now, citing the Diamond Princess, those actual numbers, that would at least be somewhat factual. USA Today went another route. They quoted Trump. They said, well, some people disagree. Those people are 
experts like the head of the World Health Organization. And then they said on the other side, quote, other analysts said Trump is echoing a point made by health officials. The fatality rate may be inflated because some cases are not being reported. Quote, as the number of people getting tested positive goes up, the mortality percentage will go down, tweeted Ari Fleischer, a former press secretary for President George W. Bush. Yes, Ari Fleischer tweeted. Great. Trump continued on in his phone call to Hannity. Personally, I would say the number is way under 1%. Now, uh, with the regular flu, you know, we average from 27,000 to 77,000 deaths a year. Who would think that? I never knew that until six or eight weeks ago. He personally thinks. Who cares what he personally thinks? As six out of 700 on the Diamond Princess indicate, it can't be that much under 1%, he personally thinks. Trump all week has been putting the quality of that thinking on display. Three days ago, here was Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, desperately trying to get accurate information to the president. Would you make sure you get to the president the information that a vaccine that you make and start testing in a year is not a vaccine that's deployable. So he's asking the question, when is it going to be deployable? And that is going to be at the earliest a year to a year and a half. He wanted to let the president know it was imperative. The president knew the facts. Can we, Fauci said, speaking directly into cameras and the media assembled, can we get this important public health information to the president? The desperation in his voice, the urgency of the message made more stark by this fact. The president was seated three people to his left. It's about 11 feet away. The reason why Fauci was having difficulty giving the president accurate, useful information so that the president could process it in an accurate and useful way is that the president is impervious to such information. In the play-acting media availability coup meeting with vaccine makers that was occurring that you just heard, Trump was told over and over again that a vaccine will take a few months to develop, then we start testing, then we certify it works and doesn't, you know, kill more people than it helps, then we bring it to market. He was told this at least three times. I was watching the press conference. I understood it. But this is how Trump processed this clear and consistent message. I've heard... Very quick numbers, a matter of months, and I've heard pretty much a year would be an outside number. You're talking about three to four months? No, 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 you big dummy. You're hearing wrong. No one is saying three to four months to get an actual vaccine. How bad are you at this? Again, all my knowledge, all my expertise was gained from watching the same meeting that Trump was sitting in. But I was actually listening. Here's Politico reporting on that. Quote, a senior White House official pushed back on the notion that the president was confusing important information, arguing that Trump was trying to clarify medical vernacular that might be unclear to the public. Quote, it's not confusion. He's just asking questions. The official said, there's just a lot of back and forth when you're talking about vaccines versus treatment. No, the difference between months and a year is not medical vernacular. He isn't confused when he consistently makes the same mistake in the same direction. The virus will go away by April. Vaccines will take two months. Vaccines will take maybe a couple more months. Vaccines will take on the outside, I don't know, a year. Vernacular, more like vernacular homicide. Yesterday afternoon, 
Trump blamed the lack of testing kits on the Obama administration. And to go a little bit further, the Obama administration made a decision on testing that turned out to be very detrimental to what we're doing. And we undid that decision a few days ago so that the testing can take place in a much more accurate and rapid fashion. The coronavirus and the Obama administration existed at two different times in world history. There was no coronavirus when there was an Obama administration. The Chinese government confirmed they had been treating cases in Wuhan province in a press release that went out December 31st, 2019. The sickness occurred a few weeks earlier than that, in 2019. The Obama presidency ended in January of 2017. The bat that was eaten by the snake that was sold in Wuhan That might not have even been alive during the Obama administration. To blame the Obama administration for a change in rules that prevented testing for a virus that didn't exist until years after they left office, that's a kind of virus of its own kind. And no one can figure out what testing he meant, what he was actually talking about, which I guess protects the Trump administration from the question, well, in your first three years in office, why didn't you see to this? I mean, he did get around to pardoning Blagojevich, Why not addressing the tests that you seem to know about, though no one else does? Finally, though it won't be the last thing, Trump bragged about his polls on the coronavirus, noting that Gallup showed that 77% believe the government would be up to the challenge. He tweeted, quote, Gallup just gave us the highest rating ever for the way we are handling the coronavirus situation. Yeah, except the poll was conducted two weeks ago when no Americans had the virus. Trump went on to say, The April 2009-2010 swine flu, where nearly 13,000 people died in the U.S., was poorly handled. Ask MSDNC and lightweight Washington failure at Ron Klain, who was president then. I have the answer. It was this guy who said this to the public at the time. Keep your hands washed. Cover your mouth when you cough. Stay home from work if you're sick and keep your children home from school if they're sick. And let us now contrast it with this guy, the current guy, who says this. So if, you know, we have thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that get better just by, you know, sitting around and even going to work, some of them go to work, but they get better. I can think of one job occupant who would really do wonders to fight this virus if he just stayed home from work. Then again, he's got a phone in his bedroom and the TV is playing Fox News. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi, the GIST's associate producer, points to an institution that she believes we have sadly neglected in this country, and that is the Adventure Park Concrete Slide. Sure, many a thigh has been ruined and torso mangled in such a setting, but it does teach character. Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, bemoans the loss of an institution within an institution, the large discus-sized buzzer for when there's a wait at the chain restaurant. Now it's all, oh, what's your cell? We'll buzz you. But there was a time when you were thrilled by one of these thick squares lighting up as you're browsing the aisles of the Hallmark store, waiting for a seat to open up at the Outback Steakhouse. We'll never get that back. The gist. If I could rehabilitate just one institution, it would be this. The urinal with ice in it. Unnecessary. Possibly unsanitary. Illogical. But it just reeked of class. Yes, class is what it reeked of. 
Umperu Deperu Duperu, and thanks for listening.